0: Wild, Precious Life is brought to you in part by Greenlight Bookstore. Through knowledgeable staff, curated book selection, community partnerships, and a robust e-commerce website, Greenlight combines the best traditions of the neighborhood bookstore with a forward-looking sensibility and welcomes readers of every kind to the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more and shop online at greenlightbookstore.com. We are also brought to you by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Learn more and register at StoryStudioChicago.org. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections, In each episode, I talk to prize winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. There are a lot of things I love about this podcast. I love telling stories to strangers. I love that the laughter we share travels around the world. And I love that we hear from wild, precious listeners everywhere who are taking risks, standing up for justice and making the most of the time we have. One of my favorite things is that week after week, I get to meet fascinating people who both challenge and affirm my worldview. Today's guest, Mickey Kendall, challenged my assumptions about a whole lot of things. What it means to be a feminist, what it means to be an ally, what it means to stand up for what we believe. She even has me questioning niceness. We cover a lot of ground today. Education reform, sexuality, affordable housing. At first glance, these might seem like unrelated topics, but what was so clear from my conversation with Mickey was that too often, we turn a blind eye to the needs right in front of us, in our community. Whether we admit it or not, we are interconnected. When we invest in our schools, when we invest in affordable housing, when we invest in one another, it matters. So, open your eyes and hold onto your hats. Our guest today is Mickey Kendall. Mickey is a writer, writer, diversity consultant, and an occasional feminist. She has appeared on The Daily Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and Showtime. And she discusses race, feminism, police violence, tech, and pop culture at institutions and universities across the country. Mickey is the author of Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, a graphic novel illustrated by A. DiAmico. She is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Hood Feminism. Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. This book was named Best of the Year by BBC, Bustle, and Time. NPR called Hood Feminism a searing indictment of mainstream feminism. Writer Elizabeth Gilbert calls it essential reading. And I call it a masterclass in some hard truths for those of us who feel we espouse progressive values. So, Mickey Kendall, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me on. We are grateful for your time, and I feel like there's so much to talk about. I want to talk about beauty myths and fast-tailed girls and anger and the housing crisis and education and the failures of mainstream feminism and the dismantling of the patriarchy. And so I feel like, what, like 10 minutes? We can just knock all that out? I think we'll (laughs) just go for it. I mean, for real, I don't know how you got all of that and so much more into one relatively slim book, it's pretty amazing. But first, can we just back up and start with with your story? For folks who aren't lucky enough to know you through your writing or your activism, would you mind just telling us the story of you?
1: So the story of me is complicated.
0: We're going to go with that.
1: I'm one of those girls, right? Grew up on the south side of Chicago. I think they're calling us hot Cheeto girls now. <laughs> Fun fact, hot Cheetos <laughs> are delicious. You'll be okay. <laughs> hot pickles are too. And I was one of those girls that used to get, you know, the like at-risk girl lecture about not getting pregnant, right? And I had a grandmother who would literally choke me out if I had talked about dropping out of school, and some family members that were a little special, and like a grandfather, and all of these things that for me are normal. This is just how my childhood went. I've since learned that people sometimes get very focused on the well, whole, "What was that like?" Not growing up in a two-parent household in the suburbs, and I don't know. It was life. It's fine. I eventually lived with my my mother and stepfather in the suburbs. I don't recommend. I don't. (laughs) But my story is one where I made a lot of not so great choices out of an array of not so great choices. And then I had to figure out how to come back from that. Or I made what looked like a bad choice turn into a good choice or a good choice turn into a bad choice, right? Because that's life. Life is very messy. And along the way, I learned a lot about both what I thought feminism was and what I felt like feminism needed to be. And, you know, I got divorced, lived in the projects, I was on food stamps as an adult, the whole poverty shtick. And feminism usually talks about women like me as though we were a problem to solve. That is something someone should figure out. Those women have nothing to say, but we should help them fix their, their poor downtrodden lives. And so when I would then interact with broader feminists, Things And they would say, oh, that's not a feminist issue. Right. And housing wasn't considered feminist. Gun violence wasn't considered feminist. Hunger. All of these things that are in the book were somehow seen as being issues, but issues for other people to solve, not for feminism to address. I'm kind of determined. The only thing I ever get right is to make people think about the material conditions of women as feminist issues.
0: I love it. I love it. I'm grateful for that. And I actually read both of your books at once. So I was reading the graphic novel that you did, Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, with A. Diamico. And in this one, I felt part of this larger journey, right? This was all of us. This is a history of women I didn't even know I didn't know. So in this one, I felt like I was on the team. And then on in this one, in Hood Feminism... I was reading it. I'm like, I think I might be the villain of this story. I'm not on the team. In fact, I'm shaking the book hard. And I'm like, oh, no. In fact, I am the problem in this one. And have you had that kind of a response from the white lady readers? So
1: there are some people who have a lot of feelings, so many feelings. And sometimes they express those feelings to me. Sometimes they express them to other people. There are people who, and it's a weird split, right? There are people who have never thought about these things. And then there are people, because of a single incident sometimes, have thought about them, but didn't think about them as an ongoing problem. And so I have a couple of different versions of this conversation. I have people whose feelings are really hurt by the book, by the second, by the feminism. I have people who were like, oh, I knew some of this. I didn't know all of it. And I never thought about it this way. And then there's like a subsection of white women who also, for the most part, were poor, were really struggling financially at various points, or who had other experiences along those lines. We were like, this is why I don't like feminism. Oh, okay. Now I know what I need to do better. Right. And it's, it's an interesting journey for the women who are not offended by and large, the white women who are not offended. When you talk to them, they grew up in low income communities. They also never felt like feminism was for them because the CEO conversation really wasn't part of it for them. And they were generally, you know, retail, lower income, lower wage jobs and talked down to by some of the same people who would say that feminism is for all women. Right. And so they were able to tie in, even if it wasn't necessarily always about race. One of the things that's been really interesting for me. Usually, when we talk about racism in America, we tend to point at poor white people. But the most aggressive about this book have not been poor white people. It has largely been very well off white people who are horrified at the idea that they might not be the perfect liberal ally. They also don't want those kids in their schools, though.
0: Isn't that the truth? Did you mm-hmm. listen to Nice White Parents, the Hannah Jeffy Walt? That's exactly what she's talking about. The nice white parents. The well-intended parents in the schools who are listened to at an astronomical rate and whose decisions screw things up for everyone. They have no thought about the consequences of their decisions beyond their one child. As someone who's worked in public education my entire adult life, I see what look like segregated schools to me when I'm the only white woman standing in a, in a room full of learners of color. And I'm wondering, why am I the teacher here? And why are y'all in, if Brown v. Board was 1954, why are y'all learning in a school where we don't have the things we need? And right down the street, they do have the things they need. And, and, and everybody knows it, but nobody says it. We mandate that you go to a school. But no one is legally bound to provide, first off, equality, let alone equity in our schools. We have all of these rules that are rules, and then you scratch the surface of them. And I was like, well, it's a rule. But it isn't fair, and it isn't right. And I appreciate that you talked about education as one of your chapters. I have never seen in a feminist book, not in any of them in college, not in any—I've never seen a feminist discourse on education, and I was grateful, grateful for that. I also, I should say, The Fast Girls, that chapter just— killed me cuz at the same time that I felt like I was the villain of this book I was also like exactly right cuz the worst thing you could be my grandmother passed away god rest her soul in 2016 so she never lived through that particular period in our history but I recognized those values I was told to be a good girl you just you knew exactly how you're supposed to be and then I was 12 when my boobs came in and they were huge they're still huge right so I here I am trying to be a good girl but I'm the one who the camp counselors are hitting on at church camp when I'm 13 and I'm made to feel like it's my fault, right? That even though hormones are making you feel the feelings, God forbid you act on any of that. So I was really grateful for for that aspect of feminism. Like like we talk a lot about reproductive rights and there's lots to say there, but the what we teach girls about their bodies well before any of those choices. And
1: this is the thing that I, I guess, because why, part of why it's in there I see people respond to young women on social media as though they don't remember their own teens, right? So they will see a girl dancing on TikTok and she's got hickeys and people are like, well, where's her mom? How could they let her be outside like that or whatever? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I was around in the 90s. I know exactly what we all did, Susan. Like, you may not have pictures of you, but we were at the same (laughs) parties. We were kissing some of the same trash boys, right? I went through an awkward phase where I really liked white guys that wore leather jackets and had long hair. And I know all (laughs) of the bad things I did there. I went through a separate phase that was really all about guys that look like Method Man. And I know what I did there. And at no point in any of that was it that I was somehow supposed to be less innocent or less whatever, because I was exploring my own sexuality. I was going through a perfectly normal developmental stage. We were all going through a perfectly normal developmental stage. The way people feel about us going through that perfectly normal stage, the way people will try to prey on you for going through that perfectly normal stage, those parts were not our burden to carry, right? Your boobs show up when you're 10 or 12 or 13, right? My, I am generously enhanced around the rear end. I am generously endowed. We'll put it that way. That showed up, I think I was eleven. There's not, like, you can't put that away, right? You can't, there's only so many of a sweatshirt you can put on to cover up the, the, the girls. There's only so much you can wear on the bottom. But basically, your body is the one you're inhabiting and everybody else responds to it. And then you're told their feelings are your responsibility. No, their feelings, especially the adults, are them proving that they're creeps. Like a lot of them are proving that they're creeps.
0: Yeah, no. And my my grandmother, I loved her. She was one of my favorite people, but they don't know how to to talk to us except to just tell us to cross our legs and say and say no. So do you mm-hmm. think we're do you think we're doing any better teaching this next generation of young women? Do you think you know our daughters, our nieces, do you think they're getting different messages about sexuality today?
1: I think we are doing a better job of teaching them about sexuality, but I think the way that we're doing it is sort of backwards, right? So we're seeing, whether we're talking about Cardi B and Meg Stallion and WAP or other things like that, we're seeing those things, right? And the girls are responding to seeing that imagery and then we try to shame them in some ways. Well, some of us, some of us are like, oh no, girl, go ahead, do you. Here's how to be (laughs) safe, right? I I am the birth control auntie. I will take you to the doctor. I will take you to the clinic. There is no judgment here, except... You should wrap it up. And if he's ugly or mean to you, why are you you letting him breed on you, right? Also, if he's old, auntie will kill him. So (laughs) before you come to auntie, I need you to look at his age because if the numbers are wrong, right? And so I think we're doing somewhat better, but I think in a lot of respects, we're really uncomfortable with the realization that young women might own their bodies. And again, I also feel like people get very hypocritical as they're watching younger women because- Many of the people who have feelings about this, they're perfectly fine in purchasing, commodifying, and engaging in those behaviors, not only in their youth, but sometimes right now. They just don't want the young women to be able to make a choice. They don't want them to be able to say no, right? And I feel like we are teaching girls slightly better about saying no, but we're not teaching them enough about why it's okay for them to say yes. And why it's okay for them to refuse to be ashamed of enjoying themselves.
0: No, that's so that's so well said. I have a uh, three kids. My son is eight. I have two daughters, eleven and sixteen. And my daughter, I think it was last year, the last last year, if I could take her and her friends to see the the J Lo movie, the Hustlers movie about strippers. And at first, I had like, and and so I had my oh my moment in my head. Uh-huh. And what I said to my daughter was. Sure. Absolutely. Well, big surprise. The moms of some of her friends said, no way. You're not going to see a stripper movie. But my daughter and I absolutely went because here she was asking me to take her to a movie to talk about bodies and women and commerce and poverty and our common humanity and, and what it means to confront the patriarchy, what that looks like. And and she was asking me to talk about those things. I, I feel like as, as moms, we I don't know, we proceed at our peril when we there's not that many opportunities where girls come to us, right? They come to you for birth control one time. And if you say no, they remember that you said no. And women remember, right? We don't we don't keep coming back. So you, you have a limited number of chances to really say, Yeah, mom, how come if J Lo's older than you, how come you can't spin in a pole like that? And then you have that conversation about mom's core strength and how she wishes she could. But you know, we also talk about bodies. And I thought it was, mm-hmm. I was grateful she asked. I was glad for, in this case, to to sit with her and to watch that movie. And this is the thing. i So
1: one of my kids is non-binary and possibly trans. We're working that out right now. And I have been the lowest reaction mom in the history of lowest reaction moms. And it's mainly, even though I know that there are members of my family that would have a big response, but it's mainly I want this kid to keep talking to me. I want this kid to feel safe coming home. I want this kid to know no matter what, mommy loves you. Right. And they give you so few corners to turn, right. It's not really a straightaway this your parenting cake. And you can basically pick, is this going to end in estrangement or are we going to speak to each other for the next 50 years? And some of these pivots, right. Is this going to be a thing that the therapist has to hear about? Or is this a thing where they roll their eyes and like, Oh, she was fine. She's just so embarrassing. And I always err on the side of like, yeah, she's OK. It's just she's embarrassing. Right. Because there are things that are really big issues, drugs and all of this. And then the rest of it, I'm just kind of like, listen, right. At 16, you feel like it's inappropriate. But at 18, we're sending them off to college. I would rather we have this conversation at 16 and be honest about bodies and expectations and sex and what they may encounter in a couple of years then wait until they're 18 and they're calling me because something went wrong. And maybe I got to bail them out or maybe they're in a hospital. I I definitely don't want that door. I want the first door.
0: Absolutely, because at least they know what it is you'll say, because at least you've had those conversations. And I think about some of the terrible taste that I had in boys who did not treat me right and and i know that that's because i felt i grew up feeling like there was something wrong with me and so to be acting on any of that sexuality was was i was just confirming what everybody knew that this was not okay so of course they shouldn't treat me well because you know i what what is all this i thought there were all kinds of myths in your book that you debunked and there are other ones i would love to i'm going to list a few and you could just you could just have your pick but um the myth of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and or America, the meritocracy. Take your pick. Do you want to comment on either of those two things?
1: I want to talk about the bootstrap thing because I I think people think that that works somehow. And A, no one has ever pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Literally no one. You can lift your foot maybe with the bootstrap. It's probably going to break, but maybe you can lift your foot <laughs> with it. You can't climb any ladders. It's not even how ladder climbing works, right? <laughs> And this ties actually into the meritocracy. So we're talking about both of them. It's a roller coaster ride, right? So people will say, I got where I did because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got here under my own steam and hard work and meritocracy and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And then you just have to ask a couple of questions about where they went to school, right? How they got that first letter for college, their first job, et cetera. And you find out very quickly that bootstraps actually means parents, and teachers and other community members who helped and that the meritocracy is mostly relationships made through those various connections that led them to the college, the degree, the the trade school, whatever. And I think people think they need the bootstraps lie to believe the meritocracy lie because otherwise they might have to admit that they are relying heavily every day on a community that not everyone can access. And the privileges that community has gotten through, and we're going to really get gully here, through being white at the right time in American history, through being right at the right income level in, in American history, and through pure just luck. This is the thing. All of this hinges around the idea that if you're not rich, you're just hardworking and nothing lucky or fortuitous or privilege has never impacted your life. Most people in America, in the world, are not rich. We have a weird thing with wealthy people where we think hoarders and that's really what they are at a certain point, right? If there's a B in your income level, in your net worth, you are a hoarder of cash. (laughs) You are someone who does not recirculate it into the economy, you just hoard it. I'm just gonna say that. And we don't call that hoarding, but that's essentially what it is, right? There comes a number where everything past that number. You're not buying the thing that you need. You're barely buying anything you want. You have seven yachts. The first yacht's not broken. You just don't know what else to do with all that money. And you have the emotional capacity of a ferret. So you don't actually decide to give that money to people who could use it, to donate it to charity or whatever, right? Instead, you buy yachts. I don't know what the yachts do when they're when they're not at home. I, I think you just have them, like Monopoly. I don't know.
0: I don't know about you. When last time was you bought a pair of boots? But I there are no bootstraps on any boots anymore. So you can't even, maybe there was back in the day a bootstrap, but those, you can't pull yourself up by something that isn't there. So there's also that. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. But another myth that I found in your book again and again is this myth that hardworking people aren't homeless. Because there's a program for that, right? If you, you choose to be homeless is a is another myth I saw debunked in this book. Can you speak to that? Is there a program for that? Are there hardworking people who are homeless?
1: There are millions of hardworking people who are unhoused, homeless, or in unstable housing. The programs you think exist have been woefully underfunded, not just in terms of what they will pay out, but even in terms of funding staffing for them. So you have waiting lists for those programs that are a decade long that are two decades long, but it's a very handy dandy way to say, well, there are programs for that that will prevent you from being homeless. And we literally see people, and I'm using New York as an example, who are in New York with multiple jobs. The articles exist. You don't have to believe me. You can Google employed and homeless in New York, I think would be the catchphrase, or employed and homeless in America. And you can see people who sometimes have two or three jobs. What they don't have is affordable housing. And we have a lot of housing that is essentially ghost housing. The words luxury condo should be a red flag to you wherever you are, because you know what lives in those luxury condos mostly? Not one. they're just a way to launder money, move some cash around for various investors. They're not really housing. Right. And you'll see this and you'll say, well, you know, if you work hard enough, you can afford. I am a New York Times best-selling author. I make a really good living. I still can't afford eight grand a month in rent. I can't afford the numbers on some of these luxury places that I see. And we have two college degrees. I am a veteran. I've done all of those bells. I ring all the bells and whistles, right? We've just paid for college for my oldest. We're paying off our own student loan debt, all of this. but We are doing the thing, everyone says. We live in a place, it's nice enough, but it is not luxury. It is merely comfortable, right? We had to severely cut our living expenses. I don't think I'll ever get to a point where I could afford or justify, even if I could afford, spending eight grand a month on housing. They just can't imagine it, right? But I also don't live someplace where that's considered a normal rent. However, if you are in several major cities in New York, this Bay Area even frankly, unfortunately, some parts of Chicago these days, people think that rent should be the equivalent of a month's salary, right? Daycare costs the equivalent of a month's salary. I don't know how you live, but if a two-bedroom is $2,300 a month and daycare is $2,000 a month, even if you are making $72,000 a year, you are not making enough to afford that lifestyle which would mean you would need an apartment that would cost more like 1200 a month for a two-bedroom if it's you and a child and all of that. Good luck finding something that costs 1200 a month that's a two-bedroom that you would want to walk into and bring a child into in most major cities.
0: That's very true. That's very true. Let's do one more myth from the book before I pivot. I love this one. Quote, women should be nice. That is a myth from the book. Can you help me with that one, Mickey, my nice... Friend, what? Yes. Should women be nice?
1: Niceness is useless. I'm going to be honest with you. Niceness is where you smile really nice, really pleasantly, and you say things or you do things that are often uncomfortable, inconvenient, unpleasant, whatever, or useless. And here's the kicker. Kind is effective, right? If I am on the side of the road and I have a flat tire, a nice person will say, oh, you poor thing. Here, I'll sit with you until AAA shows up. A kind person who may or may not be nice to me will pull up and say, You can't change that tire
0: girl <laughs> here and change the tire, right? You see that. I liked I like that quote. No one has ever freed themselves from oppression by asking nicely.
1: Right. No one and here's the thing: no one gets anywhere by saying, Could you be nicer to me about this violence? Could you be nicer to me about this hunger? You know what's effective? It's the very kind people who sometimes are not hungry themselves who say, hey, hey, these tax dollars are supposed to take care of people, right? Hey, Shirley Chisholm is my favorite example of this. We have all of this surplus and we have all of these poor people and we're just going to let the surplus sit there. Let's create a program so they can access that food. Let's create programs because otherwise it's just rotting, right? We also will tell women that they need to be nice to men who are stalking them on the street, who are harassing them or whatever the heck else. Here's where I remind you that a lot of women who have been very nice ended up dead. That's where they ended up. They ended up dead. So I've yet to find an example where nice works out for the person someone is being nice at generally, but especially for the person who's so focused on being nice, they've given up on being effective. I would rather be effective.
0: No, and I see that. I follow you on on Twitter. And I think that in the book, you re- in Hood Feminism, you reference a quote by James Baldwin, which many of us have heard, but it's always good to be reminded of that to be Black in this country is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time. And part of the rage is it's it's, not—it isn't only what's happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference. That indifference is largely from white folks, people in charge, being ignorant every day about how much there is to be angry about. And I I when I was reading this book, I had this um, I had this MKU. I, I, I kept calling it Mickey Kendall University. I don't know when you're starting it, but but because I would put the book down, I'm like, God, I just I get so angry when I'm reading it, and then I feel terrible because I'm thinking, what can I do? And then I'm and I so I do these little circles. So I just need to enroll enroll in a class. I think I also need to take a women's history class of women of the world. So if you guys are offering that, but so the point is like we got a lot. To- got a lot to do a lot to do and I'm wondering with with this anger because I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering two things like where have you found to be the most effective places to put your I don't just mean anger but like just rage like where have you found that it makes the most difference and then I'm also kind of wondering like how do you protect yourself when it is too much
1: so one of the things that I do is that I will try to channel anger into action okay so I knew, I asked a question on Twitter, a woman in the Bay Area, I want to say it was, it was in California, UA, an, an older Chinese woman was attacked by someone. She fought him off. And I asked, does she have a GoFundMe? And it is actually more effective making people want to answer my question because they go to look for her GoFundMe. They chip into the GoFundMe and then they tell me about the GoFundMe. They tell people in my comments about the GoFundMe. They tell their friends about the GoFundMe. I was really angry and I really wanted her to get help and yes I chip in but also I want other people to chip in I want her to be comfortable and not to worry and all of these things and I do that because the material needs the day-to-day material needs are unlikely to be met any other way and for me the thing that kind of soothes my anger is knowing that I helped right the way that I helped may be different than the way someone else would help that's my solution and in terms of protecting myself I will have sort of a set list in my head of things I need to do before I feel like I've accomplished enough. I try to avoid Burnout. And then I go do something nonsensical. Like I watch Muppets in my bed and um, play games on my phone. I play toon blast a lot. I play toon blast. Kind of starting them out, actually. Who's your favorite Muppets? Okay, so Animal is my absolute favorite, and Animal is so much my favorite that Animal lives <laughs> on my desk. Right, But also Miss Piggy, because you're legally required to like Miss Piggy. I feel like that's an important thing. Beaker. Scooter. Beep, 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 um, beep, 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 beep. Yes. Scooter's kind of growing on me again. I kind of got on off Scooter, but rewatching Scooter's growing on me again. My husband and I have a debate about Grover because my husband really likes Grover, and I really feel like Fozzie is better than Grover, but that doesn't make any sense to anyone but the two of us. I recognize that. <laughs> but I will sit there, and I will watch The Muppets or... Old Wonder Woman, 70s era Wonder Woman show. Linda also Carter. really good. Yes, Linda Carter is is legit. And I will eat whatever I'm eating. I'm addicted currently. They're technically healthy snacks, but they're these raspberry bites from nuts.com. And they're like fruit snacks. It's a problem though. <laughs> it's a problem. This morning, you, I will sit there and I'll eat like freeze dried cherries or raspberry bites or like chocolate covered pecans and watch bad television. I might go and I like to use the Oculus, those virtual reality, right? There's a couple games, Beat Saber and FitXR, that let me like vent my spleen, work up a good sweat while feeling like, you know, I'm not really working out. Like somehow if I tell myself I'm not working out, I'm going to work out. I know that doesn't make any sense.
0: All right. Well, that's good to know because when I see you, I, f- I feel like you, you tweet 172 times while the rest of us have like... Maybe had breakfast sometime. Like I, I, see you doing the work, and I want to be like, is there a GoFundMe for Mickey Kendall so she can just take a breath? And I'm glad to know that there are the raspberries and there are Muppets and there are nuts that there is some self care involved in you taking care of the world. Okay, so I have a couple of true and false questions because I know you do a lot of interviews, and I wanted to just get some true and false in here so that you have a chance to take a take a moment. So this is just a true and false, true or false. Food insecurity is a feminist issue. True. All right. True or false? Guns are a feminist issue. Absolutely true. True or false? Health care is a feminist issue. True. True or false? Education is a feminist issue. True. True or false? Affordable housing is a feminist issue. True. True or false? Miss Piggy, and whether you like her or not, is a feminist issue. <laughs> Technically I mean I feel I'm like true. I'm I feel true. like she has been much maligned and think about uh, all she wants like she said what she wanted again and again and that fell on deaf ears. She was powerful. I mean come yes. on. I, I, I think Right and, and I feel like Miss Piggy taught us all that it was okay
1: to karate trap someone in the throat if they were bothering you. I feel like that was an important feminist
0: lesson. Hi, <laughs> I told you we we are the same age and yet you're looking younger and I'm trying to be nice. Okay, so I I was thinking about this with the book and I I don't like to leave people mired in only difficult questions with no answers. But what I hear from you and from the book is I hear that some of the solutions just involves you got to show up for things you don't think are your problem because it turns out those things are your problem. And so part of your problem is you need to show up for the things that aren't your problem because they are your problem. And even if you think they're not your problem, you have to show up for them because that's just what it means to live in community on this planet. Some days you are trying to be anti-racist and some days I am and some days I am not. But you're out there and you're trying it and you're working so that for my white listeners out there who all have Aunt Susans, I love that part of your book, by the way, I have I don't have an Aunt Susan, but I do have an Aunt Susan, right? I know exactly who that is. And that if we're going to be side by side prepping the meal at the holidays, I'm going to set some boundaries with my Aunt Susan that I previously have not set. As white folks, I think not only we're not always nice or kind, but we we don't speak up because we don't want to insult someone in our family who we think we cannot change. You know how you have the people in your family you cannot change? You think, well, I'm just not going to speak up because they're always going to be like that. But I hear you asking us, not just asking, but saying you have to speak up because sometimes standing up for all women means standing up to a few women, especially ones who are holding us back.
1: And I was going to say, the thing is, is that you'd be amazed how many of them will change when you actually make them think about why they're saying what they say, why they, why they believe what they do. And I think that people think, oh, well, it's disrespectful to push back, but you wouldn't feel like it was disrespectful to push back at work or in school, probably. I I would assume so. I would hope so. So if you would tell a coworker they were wrong or tell the random woman in the grocery store parking lot she was wrong, why wouldn't you say Aunt Susan, hey, that's kind of messed up? Sure. It's going to be uncomfortable, right? We're all going to get uncomfortable in here. But I feel like we all have to have uncomfortable conversations with relatives about much more mundane things, right? There's always that one relative, no matter whose wedding it is, she wants to wear white. There's always... (laughs) You know there's one. You know there's one. Only (laughs) one? If you come from my family, there's always the one who wants to sing and can't sing. And somebody (laughs) has to gently redirect that urge to sing, right? Things like that. And so I think people should feel comfortable saying, hey, that's not cool. Because you expect other people to say, hey, that's not cool. You expect other people to do that work. Well, that means you got to do that work. Also, stop putting raisins in potato salad. Please stop putting raisins in potato salad. Just saying. It's not good. I put
0: raisins in everything, but I'm not sure that I've I've ever put them in potato salad. But now I might try it. I love me a raisin. They're sweet and little shriveled. They're like like the fruit equivalent of animal. I'm going to put that out there. I think that they're, you know... Animal?
1: <laughs> no. At most animal would be a crazy Animal would not be a raisin. Okay. I, a I
0: will give you that. He is a crazy. He's more crazy than raisin. I love that. All right, because I'm gonna enroll at MKU, I'm gonna steer our conversation to a close because I'm gonna just wait for the registrar at Mickey Kendall University to open courses for me to attend. But until then, I always close with a few icebreakers. I know people like to start with icebreakers, but I prefer to end with them. Because I find them scary in the beginning. No one gives you honest answers. They don't even know you. So who was one of your best teachers? That would be
1: Mrs. Longley in third grade, who both worked my nerves and made sure that I knew that I could
0: do anything if I tried hard enough. Shout out to her. What's a book you love? Doesn't have to be your favorite, but a book you love. A book I love
1: is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. I had a friend who taught that religiously. I have not read that book in years. Have you read it recently? Does it yes. hold up? You know, I don't mean hold up, but like, does it you know how sometimes your favorite book you go back and you're like, what? I liked that, but does this does it hold up? This Cassie
1: Logan holds up. Cassie Logan absolutely holds up. One of the things about it is that I realized when I was rereading it and I read it and a bunch of other like Color, uh, color purple and you know that kind of stuff around the same age I was wildly inappropriate in my reading choices just again <laughs> there was a vc andrews moment in like sixth grade right the is. flowers right. were
0: in the attic the secrets were in the garden we passed them around we were reading at least okay and what's a movie that you love oh
1: god what is a movie that I love oh your audience will find this disturbing but the little girl who lives down the lane it's a Jodie Foster movie Ooh. from like the late 70s early 80s
0: Ooh, I'm not sure I've ever seen that one. I've seen the one with her locked in the house. I've seen the one with her, I mean, obviously, Silence of oh, the Lambs. Oh, this mask. is I'm probably one of, this earliest,
1: out. one of her earliest fam- films. It's it's actually released really weird and really spooky. And is, there's a whole other story about why I write the way that I do. In the fact that I watched a lot of these movies late at night when I was supposed to be asleep.
0: I I totally hear you. We have we, this a whole different conversation we had to have about just the things we did that were bad. But all right. So um, multiple choice Dogs or cats? Cats. Coffee or tea? Cocoa. Ooh, no one has said cocoa yet. I love it. Mountains or beach? Oh.
1: Oh, I don't know. I like both. Wait a minute, this is hard. <laughs> I'm gonna go with mountains because sometimes mountains have lakes, so I can all go right. to the to the and hot springs. So I can go to the hot spring. Yeah, and hot springs was
0: not off. a choice. I don't see hot springs listed here, but i we right, said. we're gonna listen. <laughs> Don't have to be nice. That's fine. Cake or pie? Depends on who's making
1: them. But mostly pie, but sometimes cake. It depends. (laughs) My mother in law makes this thing she calls jello cake that is like lemon limey goodness. And it's really soft and delicious. But my husband makes this apple pie. That's why I married him. And so some of these questions (laughs) run right into like familial dynamics.
0: (laughs) I love it. Uh, you married him for his apple pie. Are you an early bird or a night owl?
1: I am. You're going to give me such a face. I am sort of split in between. I can do either. I can do either. It depends on what's going on in my life at the time.
0: That's a super the winter, boring answer. And I tend to get answer. really
1: early for no reason. In the summer, I want to stay up
0: all hours of the night because it's warm. Got it. All right. Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are?
1: I am the person who jumps off the cliff but the Band-Aids are in my bag. I'm just gonna work. All of your
0: answers are both, and you're ridiculous and wonderful. And what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Goat cheese cherry. Goat cheese cherry, fancy. All right, I've never tried that. It sounds sounds gross.
1: No, it's delicious. I also like Rocky Road and and cookies and cream. I really like goat cheese in those. No, but if you put the goat cheese cherry with. The cookies and cream, it's not the worst thing. It's
0: actually pretty good. So you you found a way for that answer to be both as well. All right. Last one. If we were to take a picture, just a a moment of you um, just kind of happy and doing what you love, what would we see you doing?
1: Probably playing a botched version of tag in a field somewhere with my family and my friends. (laughs) And by botched. So here's the thing. We wouldn't have to hit each other with our hands, but it would probably be like Nerf or a ball or something because we do really silly things. We are (laughs) ridiculous. We have Nerf wars.
0: (laughs) I love that image. I have this idea that one day when I actually have a studio that's not my closet, that I'll have like, I'll actually ask people to have a snapshot of them. And I love the idea of seeing you in a field playing Nerf tag and like that. I just think that would be great to have those. That'd be great. All right, I cannot stress this enough, especially to my white lady listeners. It is not Mickey Kendall's job to teach us what to do or how to be. It is certainly our job to listen and engage and ask how, in partnership, we might proceed as better, more loving humans and to right the wrongs of history that are continuing right up until today. Just like I think it's funny to close with icebreakers, I'm also closing with the opening dedication to Amazon's abolitionists and activists because I think it's beautiful. And you say, this is for the ones who paved the way, the ones who learned to make a way, and for those who face roads yet unknown. I think a lot of us know that road that we have to face and we're afraid to walk down it. And I think, Mickey, Kendall, I think that you are uh, someone whose courage we... Mine, and we are grateful for. I'm grateful for your wisdom, your leadership, your sass, your love of the Muppets. I'm grateful for your willingness to come here today, and I promise we're going to see each other again on the journey. Because whether or not I have earned my place in your sisterhood, I want you to know I am working on it. And to my listeners, I'm asking you to answer the call. You can find Hood Feminism, or you can find Amazon's abolitionists and activists at any independent bookstore near you and cash in some privileged folks mickey kendall thank you for being here and i'm wishing you love and light on wherever this journey takes you and folks out there until next time be good to yourselves be good to one another and we'll see each other again on this wild and precious journey Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael DiAloya, producer Sarah Wilgrub, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.